and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher. I'm a senior advisor to Montford, and I'm joined this week by Richard Moffat, who's CEO and founder at Urban Logistics Reit, one of the doyens of the logistics world. He's been part of the industrial property sector for many years. Richard, fantastic to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. Where should we start? Tell us about how you got into this space. You're very well known well, in all parts of the sector, really. And obviously, I think Shed's, most would agree, is the most fun bit of real estate, certainly from my experience of some of the people that I've known and worked with over the years. But what was it that got you into property originally? So morning, Andy. Good to join you this morning. The truth is I was a generalist chartered surveyor in the beginning, actually qualified on the rural side of surveying, bizarrely, and then found commercial real estate to be just a whole lot more interesting after a start working across all aspects of commercial real estate, from funding to letting to investment transactions and so on, I just found myself being most intrigued by what went on in warehouses, what set them apart. And I suppose the basic characteristics back then were that they were the highest yielding of all real estate subsets. And I think the low obsolescence, the fact that unlike an office building, you could relet it after 15 years or whatever without having to strip out all the M&E Mm. All of those things. because there wasn't any m and That's because there wasn't any m and <laughs> back then, and there's not a lot in our real estate now. But that's always been, I suppose, the source of fascination, really. So what agency was that that you were at? I started off at Strutton Parker and then Gerald Eve and then... Oh, I see now Andy Martin through that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. then set up a niche business called M3 back in 2000, really, to focus entirely on this area of real estate and to give investors, developers and occupiers some really sector-focused advice. And how was that? Having worked in a number of larger partnerships, what was it like going solo? I came from a family farming business originally, so the thought of running our own business just wasn't something I was remotely concerned about. I'd grown up with the pressures and challenges of running a business, so it just seemed entirely obvious to me back then. And yeah, we were pretty successful, I think, for 10 years and then sold that business to CBRE in 2010 and really then started to work towards developing my own strategy rather than advising others and that really resulted in the birth of urban logistics back in 2016. Mm. I mean 2010 was an interesting period wasn't it because things were just starting to stabilize after two years of rights issues and chaos for everybody right? Yeah absolutely right and I think what we'd seen by then certainly in big box you know a lot of the occupiers had developed their supply chain strategies they had built in many cases, a number of warehouses, both NDCs, as we call them, national distribution centres, and regional distribution centres, were following the hub-and-spoke model. And by 2010... So the hub-and-spoke model, just explain that for listeners that might not understand. Sorry, that, yeah, absolutely. Now, that's just basically bringing goods right into the middle of the UK and distributing them out from there in simple terms. So whether those goods come into the country through the east coast ports or through southern ports goods would then be transported to the middle of the country and then moved out from there which is in those days was largely driven by hgv drivers drive time limits and making sure that i think it was about 85 percent of the uk population could be reached within a three and a half hour drive time so i think you know by 2010 what we'd seen was that the last mile piece of the jigsaw needed to be put in place and lots of companies were seeing that structural shift to online having a huge impact on their businesses and they needed that last touch or last mile space to get product into your home or your business. What was your thesis then when you set up 
as an investor? We developed a strategy which was really based on what we'd witnessed through previous downturns. So it was all those good, sensible things around why did investment strategies fail? Why did buildings not let? Why was financial performance not what it should have been? And so we put some very fundamental rules in place. We wanted to remove tenant volatility insofar as we could. So we decided to eschew fashion retailers, furniture retailers, any part of the occupier world that we considered to be high risk. So we wanted to focus on strong covenants. We wanted to focus on what we considered to be essential goods. So food, pharmaceuticals, all of those things were front and center of what we wanted in our warehouses. We wanted to make sure that when we went to see the occupier for the first time, the number one question to be answered was, how essential is this building to the occupier? In other words, do they have a business without it? Can they perform the function they need to do from the building? Can they do that without this particular building or could they do it elsewhere? Mm. And then building specification had to be right at the heart of what we're doing because what we'd seen in previous cycles was that when the capital was there to be deployed from the asset allocators, then you know, essentially people just bought whatever was available that could call itself a shed and that you know, they overlooked often the important things like loading provision, the yard circulation space, if there were any planning restrictions. So the operation of the building was absolutely fundamental to what we were trying to do. So the building specification was really, really important because we'd seen in previous downturns, buildings just will not let if they're substandard. And to what degree has the flood of capital coming in over the last 10, 13 years changed that? Because everyone has been jumping on the sheds bandwagon since 2010. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is having been in this sector for a very long time now, myself and the management team know the owners, operators and users of this sort of real estate. So our black books, if you like, are extensive. And we knew that we could access stock perhaps where others couldn't. I think when we IPO'd, the transactional volume in our space was around 4 billion per annum. When did you IPO? In 2016? 2016, yeah. And I think probably just to make clear the sort of real estate that we buy, it's basically in size 20 to 250,000 square feet. So we sit neatly between big box, which is probably 300,000 square feet up to a million square feet or whatever the big ones are today. And then below us, you have the MLI space, which is typically 1,000. So multi-let industrial. So multi-let, sorry, yes. Multi-let so industrial is 1,000. Tile shop in your local. Yeah, it's all of that. It's very butcher, baker, candlestick maker type tenants in the main. And what we'd seen in previous downturns was that those tenants can literally vacate over a weekend which is not great for financial performance for the landlords. So, Did a lot of that happen in the last couple of recessions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if you know those of us old enough to remember Hanstein used to talk about a structural void in that space of 15, sometimes 20%. So that really taught us about the difference between the gross to net income. In other words, your rent flows in, that's your gross income, but actually what are you left with after you've dealt with void costs and all the other empty property costs. So, you know, our strategy was very much around one tenant, one building where the gross income pretty much is the net income. And that's served us really well, really, since IPO. And in terms of the types of occupiers that you have, you talked about having some questions around how necessary the real estate is to those businesses. And you talked about avoiding stuff that's discretionary from fast fashion, furniture, those sorts of things that tend to be pretty spiky in down markets. 
What does that then leave you with? If you slice the cake of Urban Logistics Street, what's inside the cake? Well, first of all, what's inside the cake is a long list of tenants in our 141 buildings, which in aggregate means that we've got 82% of our tenants in low moderate risk financially, according to Dun & Bradstreet. So that's front and centre of what well, we in do. plain English, what does that mean, though, to an average investor? It means they're of strong financial standing and profitability. So, so is Next, so is ASOS, some would say. I mean, ASOS may be less so, but... Yeah, absolutely. But to be honest, you know, rather than differentiating between the odd one like Next and the rest of the fashion world, I think there's been north of 125 CVAs in fashion retail since we IPO'd. So I think in general terms, it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's something like that. But our tenants, you know, would include people like Tesco, Booker, who are part of Tesco, Anglian Water, NHS Supply Chain, XPO Logistics, DHL, Royal Mail, Volvo Trucks. So it changes the nature of what you're actually exposed to as a shareholder. Because you're not just buying a property company, you're buying exposure to pretty secure income from a raft of relatively, not relatively, but uh, actually very secure covenants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've collected over 99% of our rents every quarter, every year since IPO. So, you know, proof of the pudding is clearly in the eating. And by collecting those rents, we're demonstrating to our shareholders that we take good credit. We're not taking a chance. There was one exception recently where we bought some assets on a sale and lease back from Tufnells of pretty modest rents. They were parcel delivery buildings, which are typically very expensive to build. And we always knew it was going to be an uphill battle for them because they were a relatively fledgling business. But most recently, they've appointed an administrator. DX have taken a number of the buildings, which represent 82% of our rental exposure. Where clearly now we have a stronger covenant where DX themselves are in the throes of being taken over. So we will take covenant risk in very, very exceptional circumstances where we believe this real estate story is going to drive really strong returns. So as I was saying earlier, a parcel building today is 250 to 300 pounds per square foot to build and a conventional shed is 90 to 100 pounds a square foot to build. So logically, if you get one of those buildings back, there ought to be good tenant interest from the market. So that was a decision that we took. I mean, but in general terms, it's all about the covenant for us. And how have things changed structurally during COVID? Well, it seems like we've faced a number of bumps in the road since our IPO in 2016. But COVID was just another one. But the way we set the business up was that we would manage all of our buildings ourselves. We'd do rent collection. We'd do all of the property management ourselves and we wouldn't subrogate it to a third party. And the simple reason for that was we wanted to be very hands-on asset managers. We wanted to be visiting our tenants three or four times a year. We wanted to be speaking to them much more regularly than that, which, you know, it's just good old-fashioned property management. It's about going to see a tenant, and if you pop in in January and the warehouse is still full of stock, well, it probably tells you they haven't traded very well over Christmas. So it's all that basic stuff, but it also meant in COVID, for example, that we knew within three days of us all being locked down that we had three out of our whole portfolio of buildings that were closed. And we also knew within a week that they were all open again. So you couldn't do that if you'd subrogated that management to a third party. So yeah, for lots and lots of reasons, we like the real-time information we get from our asset managers being out on the road, seeing our tenants all of the time. And in terms of the portfolio 
roughly half is what you badge as core, roughly half is badged as asset management. Do you want to just explain those and give a bit of detail on those tags? Yeah, absolutely. So we should be thought of as a total return play. We think of ourselves as value-add players. And what we want to do is buy real estate that's fundamentally needed. We want to back ourselves to grow the rents and to grow the lease terms over time and not be a bond proxy. As we all know, bond proxies go up and down with the tide and one minute you've got performance and the next minute, once the yield compression stops, then the party's over essentially. So we want Just labour on that point for a second because it's an interesting point because lots of people, particularly some of the slightly uneducated allocators that came into this space over the last decade or so, they were buying Amazon sheds, 20-year leases, 3.5%, patting themselves on the back, thinking they're absolute heroes rent's going up and they get no piece of the pie. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's various question marks around that strategy. One is some of those multi-level warehouses in real terms is their obsolescence at the end of the term. But I think as far as the pure income is concerned, as I say, once those 3.5% yields move out to 4 or 5% or whatever it happens to be, then clearly, unless the rent can really outperform, then you're going to be in negative territory. So what we would much rather do is to take a building off a modest rent I think our average rent today is £6 per square foot and our portfolio is valued off a 6.25% equivalent yield. So we think we've got our valuations in a good place. We have a wall of eight years. But my differentiating between the three pots, as you touch on, the core portfolio is 12-year walt led to very strong covenants. So that's basically the average of lease expiries. Sorry, across, yeah. yeah. Weighted whole... average unexpired lease term is eight years. So that is what underpins our dividend. And then on top of that, we have the value-add component, which is where we would expect to increase rents, increase unexpired terms. And that's what's delivered that 16% total property return since IPO. So 54% of your portfolio is essentially the slightly more juicy stuff exactly that basically and then on the development side you've got a very low level of development at the minute as a proportion of the portfolio i'm guessing that's obviously driven by the current market context construction costs etc etc when do you see that coming back up and how does this down cycle in terms of construction how does that compare to previous well the first thing to say is that uk vacancy is currently around four percent which is still incredibly low Take-up will drop from around 55 million square feet last year to more like 25 million square feet this year. So we're at sort of pre-pandemic levels. But what I'd say is there's 425 million square feet of warehousing in the UK. Even if the vacant space comes out to 5%, that's probably 22 million square feet. I would advocate that probably a third of that is now obsolete or is likely to be redeveloped for a higher value use like residential. So... Of the 12 to 15 million square feet of potentially vacant space, the amount of it which is in our space, bear in mind our buildings are much smaller, may end up being somewhere like two and a half to five million square feet, where the take-up in our space is more aggressive and the void space in our sector of the market is obviously very low. We would still expect companies to need space to keep modernizing from an ESG perspective, from an environmental perspective, they need to be in modern fit-for-purpose buildings. But also, I think there's still a structural shift to online that's going on. There's so many companies out there that still need to fulfill that last mile distribution need. And I think also we would expect over time, 
You know, bear in mind, fashion retail isn't a large constituent of our portfolio. So when people talk about retail sales online dropping from 50% in COVID down to just below 30% today, then the reality is that captures some of our market, but it doesn't capture all of it. We have lots of occupiers like document storage in the form of Iron Mountain and occupiers like that that would, of course, not appear in those figures. So we believe the outlook for take-up is still very strong. We have a very low void in our portfolio. And of the void we do have, well over 95% of that void is actually what we call purchased void. In other words, there are buildings that we bought in the knowledge that we could improve them and add value to them. When, and this is a general question, I suppose, for anybody in logistics, how much of what an investor buys or develops, how much of that do you do with one eye on flipping it into resi at some point in the medium or long term? Almost never at the beginning, but it is absolutely a factor where we're buying an existing building. So if we're buying a building on the edge of conurbation, which is surrounded by residential, then there's a pretty strong chance at some point down the line there's a higher value use that can be taken advantage of. But truthfully, it's very rarely considered at the beginning. And how much of a problem has it been seeing so much industrial space lost, particularly in cities like London and Paris over the last few years? I guess yeah. it's been a good thing for the market and it's pushed supply down. Yeah, I mean, I think the last time I was offered a number, I think 75% of the industrial space in London and the southeast has been lost to higher value use in the last 10 years. And principally that obviously is residential, which clearly puts a lot of pressure on occupiers in terms of finding a last mile solution. And that's why you're reading about some of the operators looking at defunct office buildings and so on to try and ensure that they've got storage space in built up areas. Do you see that being a thing? Do you see reuse of commercial offices becoming a trend once values which they surely will do plummet enough i mean a trend it will undoubtedly become because just the requirement for last mile solutions are so great that the potential for development in the southeast is long term it is slow and it's expensive so the opportunity to create new space just won't be fast enough for occupiers so i think people will mend and make do in the short term but ultimately, there's got to be meaningful redevelopment of office space into logistics facilities, I think. What will the main pressures be if you're thinking about offices in I mean, areas like we are now? I mean, I suppose here's probably a bad example because we're Chancery Lane, which is next to Farringdon, which will become hot again pretty quickly. But there'll be areas around London that are less hot where you're going to have quite a lot of old stock that's probably going to struggle to be refinanced pretty soon. What would you have to do to those buildings to make them usable for last mile? Well, the short answer is you'd have to get a planning consent, which may well be a challenge. Fundamentally... People's Republic of Camden, it might be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you know, let's not underplay that. The voice of the local residents is loud and clear when faced with the prospect of HGVs thundering up and down high streets, not just in London, but in any part of the UK. So that's clearly one option. The functionality of the building in terms of loading provision yeah that was sort of what i meant because the problem is i suppose with a lot of these buildings where everyone says idealistically let's convert them all to apartments but then they're really deep buildings there's no natural light the ceilings are really low they'd be pretty crap places to live yeah and i think the reality is today they tell me i'm no expert but they tell me in residential developments today 
in the tower blocks that, you know, you need to have 15, 20% of the floor space given up to parcel storage because of the amount of deliveries that are being made to each and every one of us every day. So it is possible where you have heavy goods lifts in an office building that you could convert part, but in efficiency terms, it's not the answer. Ultimately, we need to have proper last mile delivery hubs that have been built with product movement in mind and not so much people movement. Mm. So in terms of some of the people, I'm interested in some of the characters that you've worked with over the years, because as I said earlier on, industrial has definitely got some of the biggest and best characters of the market. And certainly I've mentioned a few times over the years that Ian Call was a massive advocate for me and a big supporter and a good friend early on in my career in property and God rest his soul, a great human being. But there are some others as well. Richard, I'd be interested in some of your views on some of those people that you've worked with over the years or done deals with, been on the other side of deals with. One of the real attractions for me in going into property and into real estate was because I could see some pretty colourful characters. I could see the importance at a human level of getting on with people. I think my own rugby background was probably hugely valuable in being able to communicate with people, get on with people. And I learned a lot of that as a young player going into a dressing room with guys of, you know, 30 to 35 who'd been around the track and actually navigating your way through conversations with them was pretty valuable. So you're absolutely right. There have been some fantastic characters in our area of real estate with all sorts of interesting reputations, but you're right, Ian Cool was certainly one of them. But then in the shared development world particularly, you've got some great names who have been very, very colourful, from the John Cutses to the David Kears and the Phil Silks and all of these guys who are just great personalities and good to work with and don't take themselves too seriously, but know how to get the job done. So it's been a very... Um, interesting journey through the logistics real estate world but I worry a little bit that with everybody working from home that that's sort of becoming a bit of a lost art in a way I think the ability for people in our profession to integrate in the way that we once did I think is just a whole lot harder. Mm. Oh I should put you on the phone to Sean Simons from Compton he's got some very strong views on that it's the Midtown office agency it's probably the Richard Moffat of the office world actually you'd get on very well with Sean Sean doesn't give a shit he's very outspoken he's a great guy but don't get him started on working from home that's what I sound. if you missed this podcast absolutely dig it out because it's hilarious fun Sean is very old school just on that point do you think there's been a dry up of entrepreneurs in this space over the last years has it all got a little bit accountancy well I suppose inevitably as the logistics world has grown you know if you go back 30 years, sheds yielded 7% until somebody told you otherwise, and the rents were £5 a square foot until somebody told you otherwise. And then all of a sudden, this whole structural shift to online started. And therefore, the fascination from the capital to get involved grew and grew and grew. And that's, I suppose, to use your phrase, that's when the accountants got involved, because all of a sudden, it wasn't just UK pension funds allocating a certain amount of cash to a high-yielding sector. It was sovereign wealth funds, it was private equity funds, it was still UK institutions, but the huge amount of global capital was then chasing UK logistics real estate. And that, by its very nature, meant that the sort of personalities that we came across 30, 35 years ago either were probably the old school who couldn't really embrace the changes that were taking place or had just retired or whatever, so that you know the newbies were very different a different type, I suppose. I mean, people like Colin Godfrey, it's very entrepreneurial, very, very, you know, old school agency in his demeanour, despite running Tritax Big Box, you know, pretty large company. So I think there's definitely still people there. And I don't know, it just feels like there's a bit of a growing divide between 
some of the folk that are prepared to roll their sleeves up and get their arms dirty versus others that sort of sit behind spreadsheets, projecting IRRs and not quite necessarily having the black books go out and do deals. And ultimately, real estate is a sector that demands that. It isn't simply about doing the maths. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in my former life, I did a number of things with Colin and I know that he can get his sleeves rolled up and get his arms around real estate in the same way as I can. But I think today it is very, very different. I think with the working from home, people seem encouraged to sit in the office and not to get out and look at real estate. I mean, ultimately, what I love about real estate more than anything else, actually, is getting out, looking at how businesses transship goods around the UK and getting behind people's businesses. And that's never changed for me. So I think it is a very different world. I think people think you can own and manage real estate from a desk in London, but ultimately the best performance is going to come from getting close to your occupiers and understanding what they do. Mm. Just bringing things to a close, what does the future look like for agency? Because it's going to be another tough year, 2024, for all parts of the agency universe. You've obviously been there and done it. What's going to define the winners and the losers over the next year or two? Well, fundamentally, it's about getting out there and seeing real estate. I mean, I don't think I've ever been out on the road and not come back and ask some questions around assets that I've seen and whether they might be able to be bought. And actually, agency is going to be tough because ultimately, agency's success is defined by transactional volumes and the letting up of warehouses. So at a time when that's less active, then it's clearly harder for the agents. That's before you start factoring the threat of AI and everything else that sort of comes with that and the freely available information. I mean, to put a schedule together of comparable transactions 30 years ago probably involved 25 or 30 phone calls. Today, that information is readily available. So fundamentally, you don't need as many people. But nevertheless, the most successful real estate professionals will still be those that can really work out whether a tenant's going to stay in occupation or whether a building will let or whether a vendor will sell or whatever it happens to be. So I think there's still a place for the sleeves rolled up, hard graft, get to know your market, sort of professional, I think. And are we moving into a landscape where investors want pure specialists? We've obviously seen a lot of change in the agency market, lots of acquisitions over the last 10, 20 years, really. Colliers, Avison Young, GVA, all sorts of companies buying and acquiring businesses such as the one that you sold to CVRE, at what point do clients just want a niche specialist versus a large global conglomerate? I guess both serve a different purpose sometimes. I think that's right. I think they do sometimes. But fundamentally, it comes back to investors and occupiers of this sort of real estate wanting to trust the advice they're given. And whoever they choose to trust, whether they be in a large surveying house or whether they be in a niche, really doesn't matter. It's more about making sure that the quality of information you get is better. I suppose where the larger firms have had the advantage over the last sort of 20 years or so has been really through logistics becoming a global investment market or at least global capital looking to enter the UK to invest in logistics and therefore the bigger firms clearly with global reach had a better tap into that market. But that's changed now. I think anyone from a niche or a big firm can pick up the phone to a sovereign wealth fund or a private equity fund or whatever. So I really don't think it makes any difference today. I think it's all about the individual and the connections and their knowledge. Mm. And finally then, 2024 is going to be tough for a lot of people. How is your strategy going to weather that storm? What is it that you're focusing on? And what are some of the things that you think 
probably could be a bit better understood about Urban Logistic REIT and the focus that you've got. Well, I think the first thing to say is I can tell you that we've collected over 99% of our rents for our June and September quarters this year. So we believe that our tenants are in rude health. We are confident, therefore, in outlook of their ability to continue to pay our rents. As far as the rest of the market's concerned, with a softening of investment yields, I think we'd see 2024 as an opportunity for us to acquire more buildings with the ability to add value. So as we sit here today, we've got to find the capital to grow our business, and that's probably the biggest challenge we face. Mm. Richard, before you go, one thing I want to ask you, you've got three sons, right? Is it one or two of them in property? Or one in property, one might go into property? We've got three sons, one of whom's a journalist. The other two are in property. Sadly, at the moment, none of them in logistics property, but that may change. So, yeah, no, they're busily focusing on residential and sort of general commercial in the defined geography up in the Midlands. So, yeah, nobody in logistics property at the moment. Well, we can wait and see the empire growing. But great to have you on PropCost. Thanks so much for coming in. And best of luck for everything over the next year or so. It's been really good to chat and to hear some of your views on the market. I've been Andrew Teacher. This has been PropCast. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Just type PropCast if you want to send us any suggestions, compliments, abuse. Please go right ahead and do that. And we'll see you again very, very soon. And that other podcast I mentioned with Sean Simons from Compton, you can just search Sean Simons and Compton and dig that up. It's a great listen as well. Thank you. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye.